Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Uh, welcome. I'm here today to talk with you about China. As most of you know, as you know, I've been studying China with more depth and concern in the last six months. Uh, they're much in the news now because of the trade issues that uh, are out there with Trump's tariffs. And to understand China better, I brought in two fantastically expert uh, men, uh, Patrick Malloy. Patrick? So, uh, Pat Stephen Hulfer and Patrick Malloy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I get my experts confused from time to time. Uh, Patrick uh, is a former commissioner of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Uh, he was general counsel to the Senate Banking Committee and was assistant secretary in the Department of Commerce's International Trade Administration. Uh, Patrick, welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me, Bill. Yeah. Glad to have you here, Stefan. Stefan is a professor at Cambridge University in Cambridge, England, and he goes all the way back to serving in the White House during the Nixon and Ford administration. You were there for uh, seven or eight years, as yeah. I recollect. He's a prolific author on, on international uh, affairs, and specifically as related to China, he's written a great book called China, the Three Warfares, and also China in the year 2030. And uh, I'm very interested to see where we learn uh, China will be in 2030. So starting back, not at 2030, but maybe a little bit back in history, Stefan, do you want to give us a sense of where China has, is coming from? Sure. So we can figure out where they are sure. today, and then perhaps we'll figure out where sure. it's all going from here. Yeah. Well, the China story is, is really a very long one. And, of course, it extends back beyond uh, where I'm going to begin in, in the 1970s. <clears throat> But in the early 70s, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon decided that they would recognize the People's Republic of China, and they would uh, arrange a full relationship between the U.S. and China. So Kissinger was dispatched to Beijing, where he was met by Zhou Enlai, uh, Mao Zedong's number two, and, a, and an experienced intelligence officer. Zhou Enlai uh, was uh, well-trained and uh, with great depth, had researched Kissinger's background. And he, in effect, seduced Kissinger, <laughs> calling him the great professor and the global statesman and all that sort of thing. And they... Oh, I can't believe it. He seduced Kissinger uh, with, through ego, massaging his ego? massaging his oh, ego, no. yeah. And uh, Kissinger... <laughs> Uh, came to believe that uh, they could forge a relationship based on, essentially, uh, what China wanted and what the U.S. might be able to give and how we could, uh, together, uh, oppose the Soviet Union at the time. And that was, a big, that was a big deal. I mean, we needed to find allies in resisting the Soviets. So we developed a relationship with China that was... Uh, it was very transactional. The trade was was not immediately a, a major issue, but the assumption was that if we traded with China, uh, American corporations would benefit 
Americans would be employed, uh, the Chinese would benefit on their end, and that eventually China would develop into a market economy and then a democracy. That concept was at the center of Kissinger's thought and at the center of American policy and our assumptions, and it was dead wrong because China did not develop into a democracy. It never developed a full market economy or even, a, I guess you could say, it has a partial market economy. And we end up at this very difficult moment on trade questions today because of China's uh, having taken advantage of American uh, technology and and China, because Excellent. of the, uh, under Mao, from 49 through, when did he die, 70, 76, 76, 76, was utterly impoverished for the entire time he was, uh, he was in charge. There was, uh, uh, he tried all the centralized command and control, Soviet-style plans. They all failed. Yeah. So at the time That's they the went over, famine. it was a failed country economically anyway. Mm -hmm. Millions of people died from the famine in China. And, uh, you know, Mao had all sorts of ideas. He had the backyard steel furnaces. They were yeah. going to create steel in their backyard. I always wondered what those looked like. <laughs> <laughs> they looked like a barbecue pit. <laughs> Pat, what do you, what's your take? I think um, you can't understand what's really happened here with our China relationship without understanding of what the... Chinese call their century of humiliation. Mm. The Chinese are a very old and sophisticated civilization. They were a very prosperous society. Around the uh, turn of the, uh, around 1820, around that period, the Western guys suddenly show up out in Asia and they want to, the West, the Brits, French, others, they have superior technology. They're not as wealthy. They want to trade with the Chinese. They want the, the tea and the porcelains and the silk. Isn't it true? Was it, somebody estimated the Chinese uh, GDP was 30% 30 of, of the world GDP in, in 1830. About that around period. Then, so yes, that's about right. Yes. So they were, they were completely dominant economically. They were, they were the dominant society in Asia. Other countries paid them tribute. Yeah. They were the hegemon of that era. Mm -hmm. The Brits wanted to trade with them. Uh, they went up and visited with the Chinese and, and offered what they had, and the Chinese did not say anything you have is worth giving. So they <laughs> didn't want to trade with them. In fact, they explicitly <laughs> said, we don't want what you have. Yeah, and, and they sent the British home. Home, <laughs> right? yeah, they really did. I mean, this was a time when the Chinese had sent Admiral Zhao. Remember that? Around the world, they were, they had a fleet of three hundred ships. That was earlier, yeah, than yeah. this period, yeah. Well, they, they but they were a very sophisticated old civilization. They didn't want our collected works of Shakespeare. Or no. The, uh... <laughs> but what the Brits found was they could grow opium in India sell it into China and get the foreign reserves and then get the money that they needed to buy the Chinese silk, tea, and, and porcelain. Around um, 18, uh, 
40 or so, the Chinese said, this isn't working out too well, a lot of bad things happening in our society, and they tried to shut it off. Mm. And the Brits went to war to keep that open. And it quickly found out that the Chinese were not the very good technology and warfare at that point. And so they took the Chinese apart. Um, and they won the first opium war. They grabbed Hong Kong. Hmm. They began to have certain ports in China that would be open. Other Western countries quickly realized that these guys couldn't fight well, that we had better technology. They were going to carve up China just like they did Africa. Hmm. Um, there was a series of disasters for China during that period from 1840 to 1870, 1880. Then the, uh, the Japanese came in in, in 1894, and they took Korea away from them, and they took uh, Taiwan away from the Chinese. This, the whole civilization was, was falling apart, and they blamed the West and they tried to develop ideas, how do we regain our power and our wealth? There were many different efforts to stop the decline. It didn't. The emperor fell, 1911. The whole emperor period fell apart. They tried a republic. They had civil war in China. Finally, the Japanese committed an invade in the 1930s. Further turmoil, loss of life, poverty. Then after, and we helped them defeat the Japanese, but then they had their own civil war between the nationalists, Chiang Kai-shek, who ended up out on Taiwan, and Mao Zedong, hmm. who won and took control of China on October 1, 1949, and stood up and made a major speech. The Chinese people have stood up. In other words, we're not going to be pushed around anymore. Mm -hmm. And he tried to rebuild the China through a centrally planned autarkic economy. It didn't work. He had the Great Leap Forward, uh, which, which, which of, didn't work. He had a lot of great uh, leaps forward. <laughs> the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, well. The whole place was in yeah. turmoil. He dies in 1976, and the genius, Deng Xiaoping, who was an accomplice of Mao earlier on, but then was banished by him and then came back. Uh, he got control. He said, if we want to build a powerful China, we need foreign markets, foreign know-how, foreign technology, and, then, and foreign investment. And if we get those, we can start building a very powerful and Didn't he country. write a booklet? called China or capitalism with Chinese characteristics or something like that? Well, there that's what a, they said. That was later on that they said that's okay, what they, so they doing, yeah. book, which was a, uh, that, a I actually, collection of I sayings. found a copy of that in an airport. Yeah. Know, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what, um, the thing that you have to understand about this guy was he watched, he went to Japan and saw how they mm -hmm. uh, developed it. And, and he said, we can, we can do this. But we have to entice the Western companies to come over here and help us. Well, one thing. Now, wait a minute. I just want to finish yeah. up. Nixon and Kissinger never did finish the recognition of the PRC as the legitimate government of all of China. 
Remember, we were still pretending that the government on Taiwan. PRC's People's Republic of uh, People's China. Republic of China, China is yeah. the communist government. Yeah. We were still pretending that the nationalists who had fled over to Taiwan after the loss of the Civil War in 1949 were the legitimate government of all of China, and we dealt with them. Nixon and Kissinger started the process of moving the recognition. It wasn't done, finished under Nixon, and then Nixon, remember, had his problems and had to leave office. And then it wasn't done until 79, and it was done under Jimmy Carter and the big new Brzezinski. While we're, while we're in the history mode, I just wanted to establish something. Yeah. We've had a lot of fan, fantasy thoughts in foreign policy, like we could turn Iraq into a liberal democracy. Yeah. China has no history of, of liberal democracy. It's all been no. uh, it's all been ruled by an em emperor for three thousand years. Absolutely, it's been hierarchical. So we, there's never been any market. No. Mar the only maybe a market, but not a democracy. The only brief period when that would when you could sort of look for democratic tendrils yeah. was after 1911, yep. when Sun Yat-sen became. Uh, the head the president of China. This is the republic. That this is, is the republic. Yeah. yeah, but that didn't last long, no. and there was no tradition of uh, democratic government there. Um, the, the cultural background of China's politics, you know, is it's rooted in Confucian thought. Confucian thought being very again hierarchical, deriving from the father and the family and responsibilities that people have to support mm -hmm. and sustain that. Um, politics grew out of that. It had to be consistent with it. And so you didn't have a lot of room for experimentation. Uh, but as you say, I mean, I, I think that there's a very good summary, Pat, because it gets us right up to um, basically the period when Nixon and Kissinger were trying to find a way to open relations with China um, and uh, 1971, 72. Uh, Carter, when he recognized China, he de-recognized Taiwan. That is to say, he moved away from the nationalist government on Taiwan, which has since become a very powerful democratic uh, statement in East Asia, perhaps the most dynamic country mm -hmm. in terms of economic growth and uh, open open elections. No election in Asia that I know of is free and fair, <laughs> yeah. but they are pretty good in Taiwan. So um, that's how that began. I mean, it was uh, the beginning of uh, essentially when we ceased to recognize that government, uh, they had to go off on their own and they struggled all the way through this period until frankly today. They were our 10th largest trading partner through this period. Hmm. Yeah, let me, I, think, I want to come back to this history thing because I think it's so important. Okay. When I first went to China in 1981, um, I went to uh, Shanghai, Suzhou, and Beijing, but I remember going to the Bundown area of Shanghai not a lot of the not a lot of the Chinese spoke English, but I remember particularly there were a couple students who told me there used to be signs down in the Bund in Shanghai. No Chinese or dogs allowed. You should mention that this was the German zone. 
this this was the the, the Germans. Yeah, but the they, Germans, right? But they but he, they they felt humiliated and completely taken apart but in their I, own country. I, I maybe understand the no Chinese part, but the dogs part too. That <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the Germans like dogs. <laughs> you know, we we had signs like that in this country. Well, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. When they were building the railroad on the, you know, on the west west coast, yeah. There were signs at saloons and hotels that said, you know, not Chinese or dogs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's Maybe come back to back. Taiwan is, yeah. for one, one yeah. second. Um, President Nixon and, and Henry Kissinger, they, they, they signed the Shanghai communique yeah. in which they acknowledged that there was but one China. Um, now, that we would not have a two-China policy. In other words, we would not recognize the government of Taiwan and the government of the PRC and have relations with them both. When Carter recognized the PRC as the legitimate government of all of China, they did not, they broke relations with the government of Taiwan as the government of China. But then the Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act, which essentially said that we're going to uh, treat Taiwan as a country. Uh, we won't recognize them as a country. We won't have a, a, a clear two-China policy. Right. But we're going to give <clears throat> Taiwan a lot of help and, and trade and other things so that it can survive and not be taken over by this, the... This, uh, this is a very interesting thing, this Taiwan Relations <clears throat> Act, because it's one of the most artful diplomatic documents that uh, we've seen in, in, in modern times. It allows the Chinese to say that there's only one China. And it allows the Taiwanese to say, we're our own government. Mm-hmm. And it allows the US to say to Beijing, don't force yourself on this small island because we're obligated to protect them, and we will. So. Mm-hmm. Well, at some point we need to talk about the South China Sea issue, yeah. but maybe we, one of the things I like to do is to trace the economic history yeah, from se- 1978 to today. Yeah. Because in 1978, Ding takes charge. Is it, is it Den? Yeah, Den Xiaoping. Den Xiaoping. Uh, and he's an innovator. And yeah. he keeps authoritarian control of the political process, but he starts opening up China to bring companies in, technology mm-hmm. in trade deals, giving people right. free land, that sort of thing. Everybody's invited in. How did that, what did he do to to make those things happen? Because at the time, what China's economy, even though it had, a, a, what, a billion, billion and a half people at the time, was like one, one, one twentieth of our size. Yeah. And now it's the same size. Same size. So, Don't what Ping happened t- that that... He took a trip to the south of China. Yeah which is often looked back on as a kind of turning point. Yeah. And he went to Shenzhen, which is an area that has uh, become known for its market uh, orientation. And he came back with the belief that China had to have some market mechanism in order to grow, that it needed to... It couldn't simply have a state-directed economy. Mm-hmm. And that's where uh, we began to see elements of a market and some state uh, forbearance, that is to say, some general uh, 
acceptance of the important role that markets play or could play in China's growth. So that's where it began. And then we've seen this incremental process since in which China has added uh, to, to the market slowly. But it's got state-owned enterprises, which until recently were over 50% of the economy. Yeah. They're very inefficient. They borrow money from state banks. They use it poorly. Uh, they pay very low interest rates, and their their products are not uh, sought. They're they're not able to sell their products. They're shoddy and uninteresting products. So this was a system which <clears throat> which did not encourage or insist on innovation and market. Not uh, now, but then. 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 Yeah. So what were the pieces that he put in place to bring the, I mean, he brought, uh, what, are the, what are the, here's what, what I was, saw. What was the roadmap? Um, I'm more of a trade and investment guy, um, so I followed this pretty closely. Yeah. When we recognize the PRC, the People's Republic of China, and, and Deng Xiaoping and those guys as the legitimate government of all of China, which we hadn't done until 79, mm -hmm. we also, then also got us to give them MFN most, trade Most treatment. favored nation. Most favored nation. Yeah. Now, what this means is that you're giving the Chinese the same trade treatment on each on the individual items as you give your most favored trading partner. Prior to that, the average tariff on a good coming from China would have been over 40%. Mm -hmm. Once they got MFN, the average tariff on a good coming from the United States, coming from China to the United States, was about 4%. Yeah. So that's an enormous yeah. gift. At that time, China had a GDP of about $400 billion. Mm -hmm. Now they've got a GDP of about $18 trillion. It's about the size of ours, yes. the United States. Now how, did they do, how yeah. do they do that? Well, once you give them that MFN low tariff, and you give companies that are going to invest in China, and you give them uh, subsidies and no taxes, and they even sped up special zones that you could invest, but you couldn't sell the stuff in China. You had to ship it back out of China. So they developed a policy to develop their own economy by being an export-led growth strategy. And we were sitting here letting them in 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 2000 we had an 83 billion dollar trade deficit with china in 79 we recognized them 20 years later we got an 85 billion dollar trade deficit with china as our companies were enticed to go over there and other foreign companies and ship back to us now, this has an impact on jobs in the United States. Now, the key thing, though, was China's entry into the WTO, which happened in 2000. 2002. 2001. And the World Trade out. Organization yes. is what? It's the, it's the international I framework was, through which uh, multi, multilateral yeah, uh, yes, trading agreements. Right, okay, right, I just want to, yeah. for those of us that haven't been following it that closely, I just want to make it clear what it is. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I was at the meeting in Geneva yeah. 
in December 1993 when the WTO was created. Huh. Um, it came out of, they used to have something called the GATT, the Global... GAT, General Agreement on, on Tariffs trade. and Trade. Okay. okay. I think I remember now, that, yeah. The WTO began to get into a lot of other, other than tariffs, yeah. they get into banking services. That's when we on the banking committee said, what is going on here? And we wanted to understand it better, so I was sent over. We found out that, we were, that people wanted to give MFN trade treatment to other financial firms that weren't giving us any market opening commitments. So I was sent over there to keep financial services out of the WTO. But I remember Mickey Cantor telling us that Section 301 of our trade law was going to be survived. Section 301 of our trade law is where a country we could identify if they were committing an unfair trade practice like currency underpricing, you could punish them and put tariffs on them. The, uh, when we created the WTO, Mickey said we had that. We were immediately sued in the WTO by the Japanese and the Europeans who said 301 is inconsistent with your WTO obligation where you have to win a dispute in the WTO before you could put any sanctions on anybody. And we said we would only use 301 after we first win a dispute in the WTO. Well, there's a, there's a piece in Foreign Affairs, I think, that was written by uh, Kurt Campbell and Eli yeah. Ratner. Yeah. Yes. And it's interesting because we're not, we weren't crazy then, we were just wrong. And that there are all these assumptions that by bringing China into the world economy and making them more wealthy, mm -hmm. that somehow that wealth would increase their desire for democratic liberal institutions and we would neutralize China because we brought them into the trading system. And then the other thing I think we're realizing we're wrong is that the free traders, and I think the policymakers in the United States, looked at low consumer prices, gee, you can import stuff cheaply from China, as the greatest good, and forgot about the manufacturing and the jobs right. that were on the other side of the equation, which is why Donald Trump is president of the United States yep, now. Absolutely. Because the whole theory of low consumer, low prices swamped the idea of protecting manufacturing and protecting jobs. Okay. And that's a good point. I think you have to come back. We look at this decision to bring China into the WTO. That wasn't a unanimous. A lot of people had grave doubts about doing that. How did the votes line up? Uh, in the House of Representatives, it was a very close vote. Most Democrat, the majority of Democrats, including Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, were opposed to it and voted and voted against uh, bringing China. Be here's, because here's what we were going to do: you were going to give them permanent MFN trade treatment. Prior to that, we could only give China MFN one year at a time because we had a law that said you can't give a communist country permanent MFN trade treatment. So we had a stick we could use each year in case each we year, like right. the, uh, Each year, yeah, if China yeah, wasn't behaving yeah. properly, we could take it It was it a away. terrible mistake yeah. to give it up yeah. because we, we were unable to manage or govern the Chinese after that. There was a, up until 89, remember? And look, I just want to drill in. Who was in favor of this terrible okay. mistake? What okay. were the politics? Yeah. I, Pat, I bet I, you could tell me. <laughs> I saw it. Here's what I saw. <clears throat> what did you see? I saw that the multinational corporations were very, and the Wall Street guys were very much 
in favor of this decision. And they told members of the Congress, again, we had an $80 billion trade deficit with China at the time this is going on. They said it would help reduce our trade deficit with China because we would get better access to export into the Chinese market. Mm -hmm. The yeah. day after the House vote, which how's, was a close vote, <laughs> there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, front page, that said this vote in the House was really not about exporting to China. It was about investing into China. Yeah. So that's what it really was about. In 1980, we had a uh, $80 billion trade deficit with China. Now, since they joined the WTO, last year we had a $370 billion trade deficit with China. Yeah. Since they joined the WTO in 2001, it was done. Clinton got the vote passed. Bush finished it up and brought China into the WTO in December 2001. Since this happened, we've had about $4.5 trillion worth of trade deficits with China. Now, what do we say... I've I've changed my position on chain, trade deficits yeah. as I've did, as I've dug into this more. Yeah. What do we say to the people that trade deficits don't matter? Do you want to? Do you want to? I've got. Well, I've got I, an I, I'm ready to go. <laughs> but I, I, I know to, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Paul Krugman wrote that it in. I think, I think in no important way our country is really in competition with each other, and yet I don't think the. Chinese exactly see it that way. I don't think they see it that way either, and I think that uh, they they matter because the effect of these deficits uh, can be uh, the have a very bad effect on particular industries or particular areas of the country, which we've seen with China, Midwest. Um, but I, I, I think they really do matter. Here's here's here's. My theory, and yeah. I, I haven't written as many books as you guys have, but my theory is that, and this comes from my experience in business, you, you don't just design a product and then send it to somebody to make it. And that's sort of what we've been thinking about manufacturing, is we get all the brainy people here in the United States, and then you give yeah. it to somebody to make it, this trivial little thing that we don't have to do. What I think happens in the, in the creative process of making products is that you learn a lot when you manufacture it that you don't know when you design it. And so when you send, when you just allow your manufacturing to head offshore, you've given up a lot of information that you need for innovation and growth. And so if a, if a nation is, is, its wealth is its productive capacity, I don't think you can divide a line between, okay, here are the people who are going to be in offices in Silicon Valley designing this, and here are the people who are good in China going to be making it. People in China are going to know a lot more about how this is made than, uh, than we do. Bob Lighthizer, who is our USTR, yeah. testified before the Ways and Means Committee yesterday and before the Finance Committee today. I watched his testimony for Ways and Means yesterday. Yeah. He pointed out we have an $800 billion manufacturing trade deficit this year. Hmm. Now, it was a, when I was on the China Commission, we would do hearings. We would find the best people in the country to come in and testify. I remember there was a, two professors at Harvard Business School, uh, uh, Willie Shi and, and Joe Pisano. Yeah. And they came in and they said, when you are, just, uh, when you are outsourcing your manufacturing and your technology base, you're going to really harm your ability to innovate. Yes. And if we're going to be that's, the innovative my, that, economy yeah. and we're outsourcing our ability to do so, yeah. this is 
enormous problem for the United States of America. Now, the Chinese in their 2025 plan identified 10 key technologies that are going to be the key technologies they think of the, of the coming century, and they want to be dominant in those by 2025. Artificial intelligence, Artificial Internet of Things, uh, uh, you know, that, that sort of... Uh, and that's why the administration yeah. and Bob Lighthizer are bringing a, a suit against them, because what they do now, we, they have all of our companies that put all this investment into China. And they say, you want to be a friend of China, you ought to put an R&D lab in here as well. You ought to transform, uh, and then you get better treatment here. Our corporations, who are focused on only making their shareholders wealthy, and the CEOs who have told their own compensation that their ability to make shareholders wealthy, they don't feel they have any responsibility to this country. Their responsibilities to their shareholders. So your view, this is an enormous problem for the United States, your, our corporate governance. Your view is that the manufacturer, the multinationals, yes, governed by shareholder profit maximization, yes, gods, yes, CEOs are, are incented to make short-term deals yes. in order to maximize earnings, yes, and they don't care about trading technology to China because they're making their numbers. Now, yeah, that, this is, that, is true, and and not only that, but they. They, they uh, enter into joint venture agreements yes. in which the technology is passed to the Chinese. Uh, they, um, uh, they share their research with the Chinese. Mm -hmm. uh, and essentially, they, they're hollowed out by this process. So, so it's, it's really a very damaging thing. So there's a... There's a process continue, I want to come continue. back. You know, no, no, keep going. I, this do is trade a, this is a massive matter. issue. We're not going to... Do trade deficits matter? Yeah. Okay. We're gonna, we have an $800 billion manufacturing... I heard my answer. I want to hear your answer. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you what Warren Buffett okay. says. Yeah. People think he's pretty smart. I do, he's too. He's pretty smart. He wrote an article in Fortune magazine in, in October 2003 yeah. entitled, The Trade Deficit is Going to Sell the Country Out from Under Us. He says, we're like a rich family on the hill. We have a nice farm. Each year, we're selling off part of the farm. That's the foreign investments now buying American companies to support a lifestyle we're no longer earning. We're, we're, we're selling off part of our patrimony to support a lifestyle we're no longer earning. And he said, this in time is going to be very bad development for the country. And you see more and more of our economy now, and all of the economists are saying, well, we want all this in foreign investment. Well, where is the foreign investment? It's because we've run $4.5 trillion worth of trade deficits with the Chinese, they have a lot of money. And they're now buying key technologies our, in our this Our cumulative deficit with them since 1990 is $4 trillion? $4.5 since they joined the WTO. Okay. Which is a disaster. We ought to talk about what they're doing with that money. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is the problem in the South China Sea. The Chinese have gotten a great deal of confidence about their ability to project force throughout Southeast Asia and throughout the South China Sea and the East China Sea, which is in areas near, near to Japan. Uh, they have um, essentially claimed 90,000 square miles of sea and islands and outcroppings 
as part of China. And they're and they're and they're not only claiming existing islands; they're building islands. And they're building islands out of nothing, out, just, of, out of <laughs> off yeah, of reefs, just to stay on top of reefs. The claim is based on yeah. the notion that historically, Chinese fishermen found bits of left bits of pottery, and and other artifacts around these places. Chinese have found these things and say, "Well, we were here first, and." Uh, this is our territory. So implicit in what we're saying, though, is this is not just about trade and economics. This is about territorial geopolitical expansion. And they bet. have ambitions. It certainly is. They're yeah. using the money to uh, project power and influence. Let me. And with that, yeah. With 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 that, uh, you have a, a a situation where the Chinese have, um, for for example, <laughs> for example, they've claimed uh, parts of the Paracel Islands the Spratly Islands, islands off of the Philippines, islands which are claimed by five and six other nations. But because China is so powerful, so large, so much money, and in fact is using it to buy off politicians in the Philippines who object to this, uh, they are slowly but surely moving into the South China Sea with great force. I have to say that... Um, uh, China's ability to um, suppress objections in that area is really quite strong. Uh, and our response has been very weak. Countries look to us to say, well, gee, this is not a, a Chinese lake. This is a major international waterway through which one-fifth of the nation's commerce flows every year. And when you look at the way uh, China has, has pursued this, uh, and you see that the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea had a court case brought by the Philippines which challenged China. That was the UN court in The Hague? That's right. Yeah. That court found that China had no feasible or legal claim to the South China Sea or any of its outcroppings. But China ignored that and has demonstrated a, a, a cavalier dismissal and so they of the dis rule of law. They dismiss Japanese concerns, Singaporean concerns, yeah. Taiwanese, the whole... And so what it shows you is that China's willingness to set aside the rule of law and to respond only to other nations' capa forceful capabilities, Japanese being a good example of a country that would not stand down mm -hmm. and uh, did and has rejected Chinese inroads with their own Japanese air and naval forces. This is uh, this is nature <laughs> red in tooth and claw. Uh, it's a uh, confrontation at a very basic level. That's what it's devolved to. And I, I would say this final thing that. When China displays this willingness to set aside the rule of law, and they have moved away, from, they've dismissed the legal architecture, which arose in the aftermath of World War II. They, they don't accept the legitimacy of the World Bank, of the WTO, of, of any of these international organizations, because they didn't have a major hand in creating them. Mm -hmm. They say they were created by the West for the benefit of the West. When they set that aside, you're looking at a country which is the most radical actor 
on the global stage, what, since 1789, since the French Revolution. Nobody has set aside the global commitment to law the way the Chinese have. So I think that, you know, we look at these disadvantageous trade arrangements and we say, well, so what? The answer is that the $4.5 trillion that they gathered since entering the WTO is being put to use against us. Can I... I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you. I'm, I'm going to give you a final word for our show, part one. Okay. This is going to be a cliffhanger show because we're going to have to come back and do part two. Yeah. Because I want to figure out how we deal with this. Yeah. Whether we can go back or whether we go forward or how how we how we, we are where we are now. Yeah. So Pat, once you once you once you wrap up part one, I don't want to get you guys back for part two. The Chinese use a term called "We want to build our comprehensive national." power. They had that bad century and a half. They want back. They say we do that by building our industrial manufacturing and technological base. Upon that, we will build our military capabilities, and upon that will flow our political influence worldwide. Let me just read you what the China Commission, in their 2014 report to the Congress, Bipartisan China Commission. China's rapid economic growth has enabled it to provide consistent and sizable increases to the PLA budget to support its military modernization. China's defense budget has increased by double digits every year since 1989. And that's a lot faster than ours has. We're feeding that by this crazy imbalance in our whole trade and economic relationship with China. Okay, guys, we got to stop here, but there's a lot more we have to cover, so I hope I can get you back sometime soon to, to figure out. We've, we've defined that we've got a big problem now. Let's yeah, we've got a problem. <laughs> so Houston, anyway, we have a problem. Uh, thank you for joining me with Stefan Halper and Pat, uh, Pat Malloy uh, to talk about this extremely interesting and vital issue that we, we face. Uh, if you've got, I'm going to try to lure them back on for another show so we can dig into this some more. But if you want to reach them in the meantime, Pat can be reached at P-M-U-L-L-O-Y at SSO.org. SSO.org. Okay, so P-Malloy at SSO.org. Correct. And Stefan, you're at? I'm at H-R-B-S-H at AOL.com. Okay, well, thank you. Thanks for joining me, and uh, we'll talk with you soon. Thank you, Bill. Thanks so much. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.